Okay, everybody, welcome to another Robcast. It's called I'm Rob, and it's a podcast. What's the Robcast? <laughs> and I have with me the one and only Patricia Riggin. Patricia, welcome to the Robcast. <laughs> Nobody knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> they will. They will in no time. Um, you all know my beloved friend Carlton Cuse, who I interviewed recently. Carlton says to me, recently, you have to interview Patricia Riggin. And so she's here. She agreed. She mm-hmm. came over to the back house. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so many questions I'm going to ask her that I'm so excited to ask her. But, you know, if Carlton says you need to do this, then you do it because that's how the world works. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carlton, if you're listening, thank you. Feel free to send all people my way. So, um, Patricia is a film director, has a huge movie coming out. To, it opened yesterday. It opened fact. yesterday. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But let's start way back. You were born in... Mexico, Guadalajara. Guadalajara. That's the second largest city in Mexico. The second largest city. So it's like, you know, 7 million people. It's not a little town. It's like seven LA. 7 million. Yeah. And With a lot of uh, art, intellectuals, writers through history. Very pretty city. Did you? What kind of home did you grow up in? What did your parents do? My father was a surgeon. Oh, wow. My mom is a poet. A surgeon and a poet. Yes. <laughs> My mom is a, a real writer. She's a Mexican woman, so she didn't really develop her career like she should have. She wasn't allowed to go to university, for instance. Really? Back in the day, you know, um, upper middle class women weren't allowed to go to college. So she was really smart, really talented, and she just didn't have that opportunity. But she's a playwright. She's a poet. She's a mother of five. Was she frustrated growing up? No, she ne- she never. So she loved her life. Kids said, said anything about it. But you know, I, I I look at myself and the opportunities that I have mm-hmm. and that I created for myself. Huh? Right, they, right. They weren't really given to me that much. But at least I wasn't told not to go to school. So. Yeah. And were your parents like, you can do anything, just work hard, everything's possible? No, it was a very conservative family, um, very Catholic, especially conservative to women. It's a very different concept than here, saying conservative. It means woman at home, family is the first thing. Yeah. Dad goes off to work each morning. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So having a career was not a priority. That was not encouraged. That was... It was, it, it's, it's, very, it's very strange because, of course, my mom took me to all the, you know, national spelling bees and all the, you know, contests that I was part of because I always was like the best student growing up and also a big, you know, sports girl. She took me everywhere. But at the same time, growing up, you know, once teens, my teen years kicked in and, you know, I got my period and everything, you know, started changing. It was it was the priorities changed and it was like finding a good husband. That was like the thing. You got to find a, a husband with a good career. She said, I'm like, mom, what about my career? I don't want to find a husband with a good career. And where did you get those? Because I assume you had friends who were like, okay. Oh yeah. Basically I come from a place where unfortunately most women don't have careers. I mean, they did go to school, they read and write, you know, but Career is not something that is, you know, in their... Right. So where did it come for you? 
I'm smart. <laughs> I've it. always been really smart. You knew there was more. Always from the beginning. First of all, I always felt I was in the wrong place. Wrong family, wrong society. Even though I love my family, I'm very happy, happy, beautiful, close family. But I was in the wrong place. Always knew that. So I just had to get out. And of course, I wasn't allowed to leave. So for instance, when, when I, it was time for college, I, told, I found the two, the two things that didn't, that didn't exist in Guadalajara, you know, to study so that I could go abroad. Film, you know, film. film. And the other was international relations. You know, like the the <laughs> diplomacy, and my mom said, "Absolutely not. Figure it out. Where, however you want, choose whatever you want here. You're not leaving this city. You're not leaving home because we don't in Mexico. You don't go away for college. You stay at home. Oh, you stay you in the go city that away. you're from. You stay in your house, in your parents' house. You live at home. Absolutely. And you go to university that you can go yes. to each day from your home. And then afterwards, you can go away for a master's degree." But now you're 21, you know, you're older, you're more mature. They check you out during those four years. Now I understand. Now I, that I have an eight-year-old daughter, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but without letting her know, you know, I'm just going to move to wherever city she so the, chooses. So when we think of the American university experience with frats and sororities and big, that's just not no, absolutely campus not. life, everything they say. It doesn't exist. Doesn't and by exist. the way, I read the other day an article about how this whole living in the in the university has a lot to do with the university making money and not necessarily with studies, you know, and and, with, right. and development. I think we all know that. Becoming so. a, a good student is <laughs> yeah. low on the list. So you left. So I didn't leave. I wasn't oh, allowed to leave. Okay. So I couldn't study film. I didn't go to film school. I, I chose communication sciences, which had one film class at the, in the last year. So I waited four years for one film class. And were you drawn to film? Did you know you yes. wanted to do something? Yes, always. Mm -hmm. From way back when? From my middle school, probably. From and did you know you wanted to direct? Or no, was it I just never be knew. I never knew, and I'll tell you why I never knew. Because I'm a woman. And that means I never saw a woman doing it. It never occurred to me that I could be the boss. And I just knew I had to be there, but I didn't know what. So I thought writing, I guess because my mom writes. I thought, okay, writing, I'm a screenwriter. I'm gonna be a screenwriter. But it never, it never crossed my mind. But I did my thesis, my thesis um, work, my paper to graduate was called um, Mexican, um, sorry, um, female directors from Mexico or something like that. So I did my my thesis on female directors and I interviewed really? and I interviewed them. There were four four Mexican <laughs> film directors. Yes. And I found them all that, exist. that existed. That's that was it. I they I found them. I I conducted really long interviews. I analyzed every word they said. So I knew, you know, like the psychology behind what they were saying. And I, you're like, what at this age? 21? Yeah, 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you think I could do this? No, I didn't. You still, even in interviewing no, them? No, I did not. But I always knew I didn't know my place. So everything I did, I did well. Like I was in the advertising. I was a copyright. I was a photographer. I worked throughout the whole co my college. 
mm-hmm. um, making money, making money, because I had to leave. You right. know, so once I finished college, I was I was ready to leave because my parents wouldn't let me, give me money to leave. That's like supporting your right, child exactly. to go That's the last thing they astray do. and you know get in trouble, get <laughs> pregnant, get in drugs. You know, so I, when I graduated, I had my own money. I was ready to leave, and so I left. And it still didn't still occur to me. I don't belong here. I'll always, always. Always. So I went away. I started working, you know, jobs. And then I eventually landed in Mexico City. Oh, oh, I know how I got into film. I remember now. Um, <laughs> I was a journalist. So I started writing in a newspaper. And they gave me a column. And I would write about interesting characters. Maybe what you're doing with your podcast. Which is, you know, I would find like, you know, this lady who was the first, you know, the ballet dancer in Guadalajara who used the first tutu. And it was a scandal, you know, because she wore the tutu. You know, that kind of characters that, you know, are just super interesting. And um, a producer, a film producer from Mexico City, her name is Berta Navarro. She's the producer of Guillermo del Toro. She produced all his films. She was the top producer of, at the time in Mexico. She read the, the column and she called me up and she invited me to write screenplays for a television series that she was um, going to start in Guadalajara. So that's like I jumped right into the you know, arms of, sure. let's say, Scott Rudin or some, some big name like that. Yeah. And so I was suddenly you know, walking around with her in parties and in the workplace and just meeting every single person in the film business in Mexico. Being nobody, but I was just listening to all those conversations. Taking it all in. Taking at a young it age. all in. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary. Yeah. And then uh, eventually I decided, you know, I got a, a very good job. I started working in the business. I was an AD, first AD in like American commercials and uh, in American movies. Assistant that would come director. To, not first AD, second AD. Yeah, assistant director. And then first AD in other On American things. commercials. American commercials. Like what? And, okay. So, like, um, you know where I met my husband, my DP husband? Yes, director I met him husband. in a commercial shot by Zack Snyder. You know oh, who Zack Snyder? Yeah, that's... Zack uh, is, Zach is the director of Superman. Superman director, yeah. yeah. He used to be a commercial director and used to come to Mexico to shoot commercials. And I worked in his, in his commercials. You know, so. And just kept getting more and more opportunity. Ev- yeah, eventually I moved into production. That's a very normal. There's two, two things that happen to women that are in film in Mexico. They become producers or they become screenwriters. That's basically the two things that they really develop in. There's producers, all of them. Screenwriters. And screenwriters. All the directors were men at, in my time. And uh, so I was a screenwriter and I was a producer. And I got a very, very good job in the Mexican Film Institute. At the time, it was the only production entity in Mexico. There were no studios. So this was basically the studio owned by the government. And they support first-time directors, second-time directors, third-time. So Iñárritu, Cuarón, and Del Toro, and myself, we all started making movies for the Mexican Film Institute. They financed our first movies. So it's a really awesome, awesome uh, place that, you know, helps out because when there was no private money, yeah. you know, in order to keep up the cinema, you know, 
at the cinema of a country, you have to have that kind of, of support. So I got a job there and I was the executive producer of the short, I was in charge of the short film department. So I was in charge of making all these shorts for all the young male directors that came, you know. Um, and how old are you at this point? I was uh, like 27, 25, 27. But it's still... I was really young. It was all men suits. Men are the directors. Yeah. And you, the ceiling is just yeah, screenwriter, was, producer, just whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I had a lot of opportunities. Now I see it, you know, now that I'm older, um, how those opportunities, you know, would have happened if... And also I have another thing. I was from Guadalajara. I don't know. Of course, that's something that might not mean anything to anyone here, but it's like second-class citizen. You're not from Mexico City. You haven't been exposed. You didn't go to film school. You didn't. You, you're like from, like it's so centralized, Mexico. Around Mexico City. Mexico City has it all. That's the it. rest of the countries in medieval times, in terms of you know education and culture and opportunities. It's it's been changing, but it's really centralized. Really. So you are a woman mm -hmm. who didn't go to whatever the prestigious film school is mm -hmm. from a conservative Guadalajara. Mm -hmm. So all the odds are stacked against you doing anything. Yeah. But I have a really good job back then. You know, I'm like 25. I'm carrying a, a briefcase. I'm making money. I have like a driver, you know, and I sit with all these like 25 men in suits, government, you know, guys deciding, you know, things and... And I'm unhappy. You know, I've always, I was always unhappy. I knew I hadn't found my place. So I thought, you know, I have now more money. I've been saving. Now I should go do a master's degree and I'm going to go to New York. And that's what I did. You know, I, Columbia, I, used, right? I used to be like a super Woody Allen fan and Martin Scorsese fan. So for me, like New York was, it didn't matter what school I went to as long as it was, was in New York. York. So I looked them up. I, I, I found that there were two schools, Columbia University and NYU. I went to New York to visit and I walked into the two of them and, you, you know, asked the questions. And I decided I liked Columbia because I love the trees you know, the campus was very pretty. And the other thing I noticed was that um, writing and directing were exactly in the same place. They, it was the same school. And in NYU, it was separate. The separate. writers were in that floor, and then the directors were in this other floor. So I just thought, even though Columbia didn't have the reputation that NYU had back then, it had that combination of the two things that I think make a good director. So I applied to that one school. I didn't know you have to apply to like 10 different, you know, I just applied to that one. I got in, I got a little bit of financial aid also from them. And I moved to New York and the day I walked in the street, you know, that I landed, I just felt happy. And ever since I've been a very happy no person. Way. Yeah. Uh, by the way, what did your mom think of you going to New York City? <laughs> Fine. You know, by that point, by that, that point she my was parents, okay. yes. And my mom <laughs> changed a lot. You know, my father passed away when I was 21. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, my mom has grown a lot through the years and has realized that they were very extreme and very conservative. And I'm an independent mind and I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And this feeling that you had from way back, you land in New York and you're, ha and it's, and you're, 
you're where you're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know what? It's being in a place that where you are allowed to grow, where you can you know really just grow as much as you want, as much as you can. Whatever you you wanna do, you can just try it, and there's a an opportunity and a possibility. Unfortunately, in Mexico. Um, it's like you throw a rock and you're really, f you know, strong and you can throw it really far, but there's a wall in front of it. The rock will never pass, you know, will never go far. And and that's the, the feeling, you know, I was finally in a place where I could just be myself and be as hardworking and as smart as I could. And it would take me as as, as far as I... Right, there was nothing as in my the way. Yeah, as, as I'm allowed to go, you know. I still have the same feeling, although I've been finding other things <laughs> through these years. <laughs> you know, I've, I'm still a woman in this country, you know. It's still, it's still a problem. But so then, from there, you go through Colombia. Then you start making films. And then in Colombia, I thought I was a screenwriter. That's just, you know, that's what I thought. You know, I said to when I was in Mexico, I'm like, okay, if I'm a writer, I need to give myself the space and the time to be a writer. It's getting late. I'm getting old. I need to do it. I need to like. You know, you're 27. Just, just do getting, it. You're getting old. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like, I moved and I said, okay, I'm a writer. What, what happens? The first day I arrived there, my English is my second language. I can't be a writer in this country. You know, it's just too hard. I can do it, but it just takes like 10 times than if I was writing in Spanish. So immediately I realized in my exercises that I should, you know, that like all my my I was directing also my exercises so I wouldn't put any dialogue I would tell all the story visually with no dialogues I couldn't write it and uh, I started getting honors in every class and everyone wanted to you know be part of my projects you know and I'm like why you know why would they want to help me out with my directing you know with my shorts I guess they 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 looked really good they were very successful shorts and I realized that that's what I was from the first time I my first exercise I did I knew I was a director I'll tell you what happened with my first exercise that I did my first semester yes tell me I did a little I you know we were told you got to do a documentary you know with whatever you have and so some of my classmates did like you know my two-year-old nephew walking the first time that kind of thing um and I I found this story in right in my building. I made friends with uh, the handyman, and his name was Richard Fontanelle. And he told me, you know, I was photographed by a very famous photographer when I was a little boy. I'm like, who's that? Gordon Parks. So I'm like, okay, Gordon Parks, you know. So I, I did a little research to see who Gordon was. And he was a you know, young black man, like he was 33 at the time. He was photographed when he was three. And one day I'm reading, the, he told me all about his life. I'm reading the New York Times and I see there's an exhibition in the in this museum of the city of New York showing Gordon Park's pictures. And I asked Richard, do you think your family pictures are there? He says, yes. And I said, okay, let's go together. Let me get a camera. So it so happens, you know, Richard's family were, were 10 kids and two parents. They're all dead except for Richard. And... You know, I want to understand what happened. Um, Gordon Parks published this story in 1968 about poverty in Harlem. You know, trying to explain what was going on, the riots and everything. And he chose the Fontanelle family. So I interviewed Richard. I interviewed Gordon Parks. 
Who's still alive? No, he passed. No, away. at that point. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Of course, I interviewed Gordon Parks. I brought a camera from Mexico because I was a producer in Mexico, right? Brought in some like better cam, fancy camera back then, <laughs> and I took him to see the pictures of all his family that was dead, and it's so emotional, so beautiful, and uh, and just extraordinary. And I cut it together, I edited, it, and then I put it in the drawer, right, for five years. I finished school. I made my my fiction short, which won the Student Academy Award, and that I was awarded five thousand dollars. So I thought I should finish that that documentary with the five thousand dollars. So I hired a composer. I edited it again, and I finished it, and then I submitted it to Sundance, and it got in, and it won the jury award. <laughs> And that was like $500. That's what it cost me, you know, that short when I shot it. Yes. When I went to, to, to Sundance, that festival, I realized I spent more in my trip to Sundance than what I spent making that <laughs> movie. And making the movie. Yeah. So, so that was my first my first. And you're, you're working in your second language, and that's why the visuals become so mm-hmm. predominant. Mm-hmm. And I still don't write. I mean, I co-write things. I have a bunch of stories that I'm dying to tell, but I always kind of stay away a little bit from writing because I always know that my tools are not the same as everyone else's. I'll get there, maybe. Yeah, but it's just so fascinating to me how often when people have something that's a perceived limitation... It actually opens up all sorts of different avenues of creativity. Mm-hmm. Like Absolutely. this, this door wouldn't open, so I just tried a different door, and that's actually the door that turned out to be the interesting one. Mm-hmm. So you end up directing films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I directed directed my first short, and uh, it won the Student Academy Award, and it's like a big deal in in school. Yes. Awards, and uh, and the Emmy, the Student Emmy. And the DGA award, and you won all these awards. So I finished school. Now it's time to leave because I don't have a working visa, right? I'm Mexican. And by the way, Mexicans, we can't apply to the lottery or, or anything like that. We're bad. There's no way. So I apply for a work visa, and they say, you, if you have any awards like these ones, Named them here, and all the ones that they named, like these ones, I had. <laughs> so I put them all. The, you know, the the Emmy, the Oscar, the DGA, and then they gave me the the visa. DGA is Directors Guild of America, of America. and they have a, literally the form says if you have any of these award an yeah. award like this, you just happen to have all those awards. <laughs> all of them, and they oh. gave me the visa in twenty four hours. In twenty four hours, they're like we want. So you to they're be here. they don't discriminate. I love it. You know, Mexican woman, it didn't matter that I was Mexican. They just gave me my visa, 24 hours. It was beautiful. And that is such a good story. Yeah, moved to L.A. So now it was time to come over here. Yes. Um, Stop with the, you know, New York dream. Um, Now I had to get to work and I came over here and I, I, I had a, you know, I got involved with developing a, a, a script that was very beautiful, interesting, about a little boy, Mexican boy, that crosses the border looking for his mother. La misma Luna. Luna, mm-hmm, yes. who works here as a maid. Yes. And, of course, we know a uh, 100,000 of those ladies, right? 
And so when I arrived here to LA, I realized that the hundreds of Mexicans that are in every single service area in LA, you know, the gardeners, the cleaning ladies, you know, and I just, it just was a strange feeling for me to see all these millions of Mexicans yes. here as working, you know, servicing the town. It made me feel there were two cities, yes. you know, the city of the servant of, and the city of the served. And I just felt, you know, compelled to write them a love story, a love letter with this, with this movie. And uh, I got a deal. I have a little, another little anecdote. I had a deal with a studio for my first movie. It was going to be a $1.2 million. And it was, okay, I'm like the luckiest person in the world. I have a deal with a studio. They're going to finance my first movie. I'm, no, I'm nobody and they're going to finance my movie. And then I realized that they weren't giving me the assurance that they would distribute it. When I heard that, I said, I don't think so. You know, I just, why this, it's, why make a movie that goes straight to video? I can't do that. That's not what I need to do. So I say, okay, give me a give me a, a, a window, a festival window. You guys decide the movie sucks. You don't want to release it. Give me a festival window. I need to sit down and watch the movie in a big screen. We can't do that. So I walked away. I walked away from a studio deal for my first movie. And, uh, and I felt my hair was going to fall from my head. And... I went to Mexico City. I went to the Mexican Film Institute where I used to work, and I asked for, you know, the money, the funds that Cuaron, Iñárritu, and all of them got. And I got half of the financing from there, and then I got an American investor, equity investor, and I produced it myself. I made every single decision in this movie, and uh, I then went to Sundance, which where I had that little yes. short. Uh, so they let me in because they received like thousands of movies every year. Yeah. And it's not a very like festival movie. It's a more commercial movie. Um, and I premiered it one night, not in the big theater, the small one, because it was a Mexican movie in Spanish, you know, who, who cares? I didn't have like the big studio heads in, the, in there, just the little, you know, assistants. But by the time the movie you know, ended, and we had this huge standing ovation. All the studio heads were outside, and they all wanted to buy the movie. And I sold it in one night for $5 million. <laughs> <laughs> I made it for 1.5. So I gave the money back in like a day to my investors, plus 100% returns. You... It was a nice night. I actually went to sleep thinking, please, God, please let it not be a dream. <laughs> please, when I wake up. Have this be real. And when I woke up, it was real. It had happened. So you're, and at that point, you're a, a Mexican woman from Guadalajara. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, you, you're. But then you're, things got hard. I'm telling you the nice parts. Yeah. All the the great, you know. Tell me what it and as you made your way in Hollywood. But then everything changed. Here's the here's How the sad change? part. So you know, you come out of there. The movie sold. Everyone talks about it. The movie makes pretty good business. It made like whatever twenty three, twenty four million dollars in the box office. So I feel like 
it's awesome. I'm going to get all right. these offers. Right, right. Nothing. Nothing. I, of course, also have to attribute part of it to the fact that this strike started back then, the SAG mm -hmm. strike and the, and the writer strike and then the economy. That's when the economy fell here in, in the country. And I think production came, went down a lot. So I walked out and went to meetings every day, every day for a couple of years and nothing, nothing, nothing. Were you so discouraged? Yeah, I was tired. I was just tired because every time you prepare for a, a pitch, you, you direct the movie in your head. You come yeah. up with all these beautiful ideas on how to fix the script and everything you're going to do, you're going to cast. And you come in and you like give yourself and then nothing. And I knew I was doing a good job, but just never got anything. So, you know, when I read the stories about, you know, there's been a quite a number of stories lately in the New York Times, LA Times, etc., about being a female director. And I read the stories of how a guy that made a movie that made a million dollars and then he got, you know, whatever, Jurassic Park or like humongous movies. And I see that <laughs> I made a movie that made 25 and I didn't get like good morning, nothing. I understand that there's also, you know, that there's a difference. There's clearly a difference yeah. in the, the steps that women are allowed to make after huge successes and the steps that men ha can make, you know, after fair successes. It really is that difficult. The game really is rigged that much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Well, I'm... I know there's a lawsuit going on right now. Have you heard of this? No. I think that the women have organized themselves, the female directors, and they're doing like a case, whatever, lawsuit. I don't know what those are called. Oh, a class action. A class action to try to demonstrate the discrimination. The truth of the matter is statistics, right? Mm -hmm. So they, there's like a, I don't know, like a 5 7 7%. Seven female directors in television. So probably in film is less. Um, and they have to hire hundreds of them, of directors, right? So they were publishing these statistics every year and they couldn't, you know, they kept saying the studios is just because, you know, men have more experience. What can we do? We need to hire men because they have more experience. So then they did a new study and they checked all new first-time directors. The, the, the hiring practices of new first-time directors, same exact percentage. So basically, you know, a bunch of us comes out from school. We're all new. We are going to do it for the first time. There's a hundred of us, and there's still going to be five women that are chosen. And that's, when it, that's, that's a very revealing number for me. Yes. Very revealing. First-time directors, same percentage. That's only... That's all, yes. there's only one word to describe that because there's the, all the excuses are right you know right they're a lie so anyway I'm lucky I've been working nonstop I'm very very fortunate um, you're very very lucky and very fortunate and the game is still rigged of course yeah 
Of course. But, you know, I, I consider myself one of the very lucky ones that is working nonstop ever since. You know, I've made five movies in eight years or I'm, I've been making a movie every one to two years. That's a pretty much a world, world record right there <laughs> for women directors. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget the, the, the minority thing. That, that's not important. Just, you know, in terms of women. And uh, I could work tomorrow again, but I want good projects. I'm just not, you know, I just want the bigger, more interesting, the ones that they give to the guys. I love it. Okay, yeah. now let's talk about the, the movie that just came out. Mm -hmm. My friends always make fun of me that, that I don't know how to say miracles. Miracles, they always laugh. Miracles from heaven. I'm not the one that can tell you if you're saying it right <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, so this big movie, um, big release, mm -hmm. Miracles from Heaven. It's a small movie. It's getting a big release. Small but it's movie, a small big movie. release. Uh -huh. How did you first come across the, this movie? How did it first get? Did someone come to you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they said there's this book? No, they came with the script. With the script. There was a script that was developed by the, by the producers mm -hmm. at Sony. And they were the same producers of Heaven is for Real, which I had seen. And I thought it was, because I had seen that script years, be, years back. It was one of the million scripts that got sent to me that I never, you know, either get the meetings or get the, the jobs. And that's about a boy who dies? Mm -hmm. He goes to, well, he t talks about a, a, a Heaven experience. But the interesting thing about that one is that the little boy is saying things that he would have never known. Would have not known about. Mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting Yeah. Um, so those producers story. then find this script. Same exact producers. Very interesting people. Joe Roth is amazing. He's yes. one of the top uh, really just smart filmmaker. I'm just, I'm just so impressed by him every, mm -hmm. every single time I talk to him all these years. He's... Uh, and then um, T.D. Jakes, which is a, a mega pastor. Yes. And uh, Devon Franklin, who is, he is, I think this is his first movie that he really produces on his own because he used to work for Sony as an executive. And they come to you mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. say, do you want to direct this? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't do that. What they do is they send you the script and they say, do you want to come in and talk about it? You want to talk about how you would direct it? So you come in. They don't say anything if they're smart. And <laughs> you talk and you tell them what your point of view is. You tell them how you see it, what you would do, what you would change. And, you know, when I walked out of there, I knew I was going to get the job, of course. Why um, do you say of course? Because I'm overqualified <laughs> for this movie. I had just come out of the mine. You know, I had just directed yeah, the just 33. Directed 33. The 33 was huge. It was so hard. It was such a big, difficult movie to make that, you know, for me, this one was like, okay, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go direct Miracles from Heaven. You know, because that's how I felt. For the that's how hard the other one because was. Because for the 33, you spent how many hours a day in the mine? 14 hours, 35 so days, six-day weeks. Six-day weeks, 35 days in mm -hmm. a row. Mm -hmm. Inside a mine. 
inside of mine. Yeah. You were exhausted when that was done. I can only imagine. You you live in a, in da- you work under in a very dangerous environment. You wear a hard hat and boots and are always, you know, waiting for the rock to fall in your head. I was working with 33 men, Hispanic men. There is a reason why I left <laughs> Mexico. <laughs> and then suddenly I'm like stuck with 33 Latin men in a mine. And they are all like macho, you know, um, very, what's the word, chauvinistic? Yes. Misogynistic. Yes, yes. Some of them are. It was tough. It was very tough. Um, and then there were many, many other complications, uh, undescribable complications. So I finished and I thought, you know, I got to make a really easy movie right now because I really want to rest. So you made a movie with Jennifer Garner. <laughs> so I thought, you know, this is a really easy one. You can drive to work. You can uh, be in, an, uh, in a building with air condition you know that was a good start because <laughs> i had to be in hospitals and you know things i'm of course very familiar with with um, medical things i was i'm born in a doctor's family yes i grew up going to hospitals with my dad and uh, i know a lot of doctors i know how they talk and uh, and then of course it's about a mom I'm a mom. I'm really good with actors. I think I am. I love performances. And uh, so I just thought it was easy. It wasn't easy. There's no easy movie. And what was the most <laughs> difficult thing about it? Um, oh, my God. It was, it was difficult. There's no easy movie ever. Um, the most difficult thing in this movie is I got a script that was, that was really... You know, I just thought of that movie and I thought, who's going to want to watch a movie about a little girl that's dying? You know, it's like, this is Hollywood. This is not like Europe and the festival world. You know, nobody's going to watch this movie because it's just that. So for me, the challenge was how to make it a really beautiful cinematic experience and bring a lot of visuals into it and fun and laughter and be able to really, you know, let the audience, you know, be able to w- go stay through this this movie and enjoy it, mm-hmm. even though it, it's a very you know hard subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm happy to report that um, we tested it back then, like a month ago, or whenever, and we got a 98 and from the audience, and that was like oh, good sign. People really really love it, and it's it's beautiful. They you know, you do go in for a cry, a good cry, but you come out really happy and really, like, renewed. So... And the the crux of the movie is this girl who has this... Incurable disease. Incurable disease mm-hmm. falls. Well... 30 feet. Mm-hmm. So she's been sick for a while. Mom is struggling, right, to get her diagnosed first, to get her help. And they just live a really tough life because she can't eat. She needs to be too fed, things like that. And she is uh, back in her backyard. There's lots of trees. And sister is like trying to cheer her up and says, let's climb the tree. They used to be climbing all the time. She hasn't done it in a while. She goes up 
and she falls inside the tree. Thirty the inside the tree, thirty feet down on her head. It's completely hollow. I went to see it. Completely hollow. So, you know, of course, the firemen come and, you know, hours to rescue her because, you know, the tree's very old and they can't cut it and all of that stuff. And then she, they finally bring her out. She's perfectly fine. Nothing happened to her. Nothing. Nothing. Scratches. But the most incredible thing, of course, is that a few days after they realize she's in no pain anymore. And she never, ever takes any of the 25 medications that she used to have to take every day. So, you know, I interviewed the doctor who's, you know, completely, let's say agnostic, put it somehow, a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and then I met, you know, I met the girl. I looked at the tree and it's just pretty incredible. But the movie's not only about that. I put other things. Like what? You know, I for me it was important that I when I read it, I thought, okay, so yes, it's about a miracle. It's pretty great. But what what are we gonna give the audience? You know, because this thing happens to like one family every decade maybe i don't know how often something like right, this happens right, right. you know and what about everyone else what about the rest of us yes and so <laughs> i basically brought in a new another message in the movie which has to do with that's why it's called miracles because you know the the, the journey and the and the, the learning of the character is how all these people around them through these very difficult years came out to help them. So it's about human kindness. It's about acts of kindness and the little things around us that, you know, just help us through. And that's really the message that God is right there helping you out in the tough situations. You just have to be aware and look around you and you'll discover it. So good. Mm -hmm. yeah. so good yeah and now people really come really happy they really do you know yeah out of the movie theater because it's true i've been through difficult situations and there's been like little like angels that that help you out in times of need those <sighs> those are good 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 people yes they're little miracles i totally agree and now you're on to the next thing Yes, I'm just uh, celebrating my A-plus cinema score Which that I got. Which is a big deal. It's a huge well deal. They, they gave it to us yesterday, opening day. Apparently, it's a very rare thing to get an A-plus. Very few movies in history have gotten an A-plus. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, how do you personally, how do you celebrate? Do you have like rituals with your family? Do you have something that you do when you're celebrating something like this? Ah. Uh, Besides, obviously, coming over to my house. <laughs> <laughs> no, we celebrate every day just being together. Oh, beautiful. I have an eight-year-old, and we just use every opportunity yeah. we can to be together and to be happy and do anything, cook a meal, yeah. make movie night, you know, do anything to be together. That's a big celebration. That's how I feel. 
and then no, nothing set next. No, I've been, you know, I worked back to back these two movies. They were hard. Um, I've been just so busy and I haven't lived my life at mm. all. Because a movie is all-encompassing. It takes everything. Everything. Absolutely everything from me. I, you know, sometimes, you know, I drive in the street and I see people sitting in like a coffee shop talking to each other and I kind of recognize that activity from the past. I'm like, what are they doing? <laughs> They're having a coffee with a friend. You know, things that I haven't done in years. I've worked really hard for a long time and you know, I'm now debating with myself, should I stop? Should I mm. now, you know, spend a little time with myself and with, you know, maybe my friends want me back. They don't, you know, yeah. I haven't seen them in a long time. I haven't had any social life in a long time. I want to be a little bit more with my daughter. And, you know, I give her every minute, every living minute I, that I'm not working goes to her. Yeah. So therefore, I haven't done anything for me in a long time. Now, Am I going to take the time off? Who knows? It's the big question. Because we're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I was telling you about, you know, deciding if I, if I try to pursue m more personal projects now or, or I keep putting myself out to direct other yeah. people's movies. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Well done. Congratulations. And you are at, I love what we were talking about earlier. And I love for Robcast listeners that we never stop figuring it out. And whether you take time off, whether you do another big thing, whether you make something that you've just had in your heart for a while. Um, yeah. I have to tell you something. I'm not, like, it sounds right now like I'm this success story, and it's not been like that at all. It's been tough. Yeah. And I've had, a, you up. know, several movies that have just been very hard to make and, and, and not successful as one would expect. And you still make a beautiful movie that costs you a lot, yeah. a lot of hard work. There's so many elements around that you can't control. Yes. And so I've had a lot of questions these years about what am I doing? Yeah. Um, how can I be happy? You know, mm -hmm. I kind of stopped being happy for a while. <laughs> again, I'm trying to find my happiness again. And and then yesterday I get I come back from Miami promoting the movie. I get picked up by a limo, right? The that you get that the limo treatment when you're like promoting a movie. You never get it before yes. <laughs> when you're making the movie. Yeah. Um, and he's he's this he's a screenwriter, the, the the driver, and tells me, "You done it! You're right there! You're living the dream!" And then I suddenly realized, like, yes, I have to be so grateful. I mean, this guy's driving the limo, and he's a screenwriter. He's trying to get his movies made, and I'm. I'm here, like, bitching about my life and, you know. <laughs> yeah, how hard it is. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm making movies, so I have to be very grateful. But, uh, you know, but it's, you know, I also have to find my voice again. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. In yeah. any case, I'm very, I'm very excited that the movie is doing so well and hopefully cross my fingers this weekend is a box office success. It's a big weekend. 
I loved hearing your story. It's so inspiring. <laughs> and I loved the down parts as well as the up parts. And I loved the tenacity, the perseverance. Mm -hmm. And I loved how you said you didn't feel like you were in the right place, like something was off. And then you just kept moving until you were where you're supposed to be. And I feel that right now again. Yeah. And I, I guess I need to remember that. So it's kind of right. cool that we're talking about it. Cause well, there's this interesting thing where no matter what you've done and what you accolades or accomplishments where you have to like start over again and return again. And I actually think success can, can muddy the waters even more. Well, that's something that I'm not worried about. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, the, but the, the, what is the, ne what is the next step? Um, sometimes, well, you know, I do this thing and, and, People love it, but that's different than, mm -hmm. like you said, what will make you happy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're younger and there isn't, you're just starting out, you just, there's a certain desperation. And then later with success, um, returning back to that mm -hmm. can be a little trickier. That's exactly But it's how still the same sort of rebirth process. Mm -hmm. It's just, is a little bit at a higher altitude or there's more complicating factors, but it's the same, it's still the same questions. What's the next thing I ought to do? Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Ladies and gentlemen, Patricia Riggin on the Robcast. You heard her here. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm and go so see miracles go from heaven. See miracles <laughs> from heaven. And it's um, a beautiful movie. We look forward to see what you do next. Thank you. Me too. <laughs>